Hello and welcome back to Curiously Polar. My name is Chris Marquardt and with me is Henry. Hi, how are you doing? I'm great. How about you? Uh, doing good. So um, we are going to talk a bit more about uh, voices. I like this series so much because um, first of all, I'm. this is an acoustic medium. A podcast is something to listen to and music always adds so much to it and then on the other hand i also know henry how much time and work you put into these episodes because the research on that is not easy and getting getting uh licenses for audio snippets is not easy too so um uh, i think you told me up front that you spent like up up upwards of a week up to two weeks on this single episode yeah but that's also part of the fun of that um because it brings well that's like the driver of this podcast is our own curiosity and what we want to know and just sharing that uh, knowledge then later on and i learn so much through the research for for that little mini episode or a mini series within um, the podcast right now which is really great but sometimes really difficult <laughs> and yeah that's a particular um problem with this and the upcoming episode yes and this is also the reason why we uh skipped a week last week because there was just it wasn't ready i was simply not ready <laughs> and, <laughs> and uh and and yes I, absolutely with you here um i've i do a lot of other podcasts that uh are very um time consuming sometimes and but but still at the same time doing a podcast where you want to convey some information knowledge also means that you will spend time researching and learning and that in itself is is wonderful learning new things is kind of one of the best things in life i think indeed especially in those <laughs> times when you when you're limited in in movement and um, we, we all know there's this kind of feeling to fall into a black hole. And to be fair, this kind of work really avoids that for me in a, in a very positive way. So I'm, I'm really glad, really happy to do that research. Well, you know, while you were busy doing research on our uh, music related episodes, I was busy building an entirely new business model. <laughs> which was kind of the <laughs> that's that's the, true. The last three which weeks were, were um, interesting because I was always looking at and I, the, the main podcast that I came from is photography related. I'm a photographer. I teach photography. And of course, I can't do photo tours at this point. I can't do photo workshops like in-person photo workshops uh, in the same room that's just not the right thing to do right now uh, so um, I had this idea of putting a kind of an online video chat related version um, out there for years but you know how it is it always kind of it it doesn't have the urgency you know, and then you don't There's really always do something it. more important. Well, and the more important thing has happened with the virus. So um, sitting at home and uh, so I, I basically came to the conclusion um, now it's now do it. And I've put a lot of things together and uh, came up with this little photo um, uh, live one on one video session platform where uh, you can book me and um there will be other photographers on the platform as well um, for little personalized mini workshops. So you get to um, like 
improve your photo editing or getting a get a portfolio review or work on your camera technique or learn about landscape photography and and all these things that I've taught for like to, to thousands of people and putting this into a one-on-one -on -one video platform where you can um, you know, a bit like a Zoom meeting, but more on a, on a classroom thing where there's presentations and screen sharing and all sorts of things that are uh, conducive to learning. And um, this is out now. It's out. It's at, at sensei.photo. Very proud of the title. <laughs> <laughs> it's a pretty amazing title indeed. Sensei.photo. It's a great project. It is. Uh, it is one of those things that uh, took me three weeks to put together and uh, it's still almost not quite finished yet there's still some rough edges there but um and and this is not the audience for this because i guess most people who listen are more into the arctic things but um but it kind of explains why we've been absent for a week and we apologize for that so anyway uh what's today's uh episode about Today's episode is about, and uh, stay, just fasten your seatbelt and stay tuned, <laughs> music. No, I wouldn't no have expected that. <laughs> Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> Indeed. Um, now, in the past episodes, we have uh, had a peek into the indigenous music of Nunavut, Greenland, and Sapmi, and I would like to uh, travel further towards the east into an area that's kind of a huge black box for most of us and that's arctic russia how much do you know about arctic russia almost nothing almost nothing almost that's, nothing so whatever you tell will be new to me so that's uh, really a bummer but that's actually the case with like 99 percent of the people i know yes. and um for quite a lot it also included me and um to be fair the basics of now the entire episode um of today is something I completely learned from scratch that's new to me. I knew the um, that there are the people we're talking about today, but I did not know anything about them. So let's start with some facts and figures. So Russia's Arctic territory stretches around 24,000 kilometers of coastline at the Arctic Ocean, stretches from the Barents Sea at Norway at Scandinavian Peninsula in the west to the Bering Sea and the Chukchi Sea in the far east, which is almost Alaska. Russia's coastline accounts for more than 50% of the Arctic Ocean's coastline. So in fact, if you look on the top of a globe, Russia accounts for more than 50% of the landmass existing in the Arctic. And still we don't know much about that. And that's something I would love to to change today and in this area we have 40 different groups of indigenous people which are officially recognized by Russia as the so-called and I have to read that indigenous small numbered people of the north Siberia and the far east mm -hmm. and that's kind of a census classification for the indigenous people in Russia and they um, collect groups larger than 50,000 members. Uh, no, less than 50,000 members. That's, mm -hmm. that's right. And those groups, they include like um, the Aleuts, Chukchis, Chuvins, Dolgans, 
Avings, Avins, Kunti, Koryaks, Mansi, Nanay, Nanets, Shores, and Vapsin, just to name a few. It's I, like 40. I haven't, 40. Haven't, I haven't heard about most of those. I mean, there are some names which are kind of uh, common knowledge, like Aleuts or Jugchis. But we probably haven't heard about the largest very frequently. And the largest group is uh, called the Nanets. And they are numbering around 45,000 people. Oh, wow. And they actually are quite uh, related to what we talked about last episode. Because they belong to the second stretch in the Uralic language family. It's the, the, the one... Is the Finno-Ugrian language family, which the Sami belong to, which we talked about last episode, and the Nanets belong to the others lack of that family language family tree. So we have forty-five thousand people speaking that language, and today I would love to have a closer look to the Nanets musical tradition. But to do so, I would also like to introduce the Nanets in the first place to to you. And for that, I just, yeah, tell a little bit about where they come from and what's their their background. So Nanets are native to an immense tundra and forest tundra zone from the Kanin Peninsula at the European side to the Taimir Peninsula and the Siberian side of the Russian north. Formerly, they also inhabited some of the major islands in the Barents and Kara Sea, like Novaya Zemlya, from which they were forced out by the government when that turned into a military base. As their ancestors, they are still mainly nomadic people, with their main subsistence coming from hunting and uh, reindeer herding. So the present Nenets are mainly reindeer herders, hunters, fishermen. Before adapting the techniques of herding the semi-domestic reindeer, they were mainly hunters of the wild reindeer. And this means that the reindeer, either wild or domestic, represents one of the elementary subsistence patterns in their culture. And this is pretty um, pretty unique. The reindeer is the raw material source of their food, their clothing, their household, their tools, the transport, all of their life builds around reindeer. It's the main unit of social status and wealth for them, and using the reindeer as a draft animal enables them to cover huge distances. So when you look on the globe and you actually see the area from the Canon Peninsula, which is um, the, the peninsula east of the White Sea, to the Taimir Peninsula in or Siberia, it's a huge stretch. And then you just remember 45,000 people in total that is not a lot of people for such a huge area. So they spread the area because they are going where the reindeers um, take them. So the Nenets people of the Siberian Arctic are the guardians of the style of reindeer herding that is the last of its kind and that makes it so unique. Through the yearly migration of over a thousand kilometers, these people move gigantic herds of, of reindeer from their summer places to um, to the winter places further south of the Arctic Circle. So in the summer, they're spending 
um, the area, uh, spending time in the area north of the Arctic Circle. Then they're moving further south for the winter. No one knows for certain if it's the reindeer that leads the people to those places or the other way around. What is certain, however, is that few places on Earth are home to a more challenging environment. We're talking about temperatures that can go down to minus 50 degree centigrade. And they're crossing the world's fifth largest river on their journey, which might be deep frozen at that part of the year. Otherwise, it's almost impossible to cross that river. They have a shamanistic and animistic belief system which stress respect for for their land and for its resources. And in particular, the animism belief um, believes that objects, places and creatures, they all possess a distinct spiritual essence. So they, they actually think that animism, they perceive all things as an animated and alive. So they have um, kind of a soul and we're talking about animals, plants, rocks, uh, rivers, weather, human handiwork, or even words. And that is very, very important because that also bears um, a lot of their culture. Because of that, the nanites placed during their migrations sacred items along the way. And that those items could be bear skins could be religious figures could be coins um and they put that onto a holy sleigh and the contents of that sacred sleigh are only unpacked during special occasions and and rituals and it was only the oldest in that clan-based structure who were allowed to unwrap those sleighs it is a culture that still had survived a turbulent history from early Russian colonization to Stalin's regime to the modern-day dangers of a rapacious oil and gas development program. So looking back in, in, in history after the Russian Revolution, the culture of the Nanites suffered due to the Soviet collectivization policy. So the Soviets tried to reorganize economy. They tried to turn everything into collectives. They forced people to relocate and many of them into uh, a sedentary lifestyle in, in very small, poor fishing villages. They redistributed reindeer and pestilence and they even punished wealthy and successful herders. And that actually changed the way nanites behave for quite some time. Uh, sometime. By the 1970s, virtually, virtually all herders worked within brigades under the authority of the state farms. But despite all this, many Nanit herders have retained their material and spiritual, uh, spiritual culture, their values, their beliefs, and their um, behavioral norms. They continue to speak their own language, the Nanit's language, although they have been sent to boarding schools and most of them speak Russian as their second language. The ethnic name Nanits means, as very often in indigenous languages, people. For the Nanits, others are all of the neighbors, near and far. It means like everybody else is others and they are Nanits. So we see a similar pattern in 
Inuit language, where Inuit means people. Kalalit in, in, in West Greenlandic means people. We have the Unangan on the Alawites, um, Aleutian Islands. Unangan means the people. So we have the same patterns everywhere in the Circumpolar North where um, the description of the indigenous group is referring to them as the people. And that's pretty um, yeah, pretty nice to see that there is a lot in, in, in common. The Russians first used the name Samuya to refer to um, to the Nanets. The common Russian etymology was um, coming from uh, the meaning of self-eater, which was referring to that they are actually not cannibalistic, but they actually producing or they're, they're just having their their own um, provisions with them. The Samoyed name refers from a linguistic perspective more likely from Sami Sam ethne from from uh, the Sami language, which means land of the people. The real name, however, Nanets returned to them four centuries later, after the revolution of 1917. Um, at the same time, they regained their name. They lost much more important things, mainly the property. Because after the 1917 revolution, many uh, properties were just confiscated by the state. They also lost a lot of their leaders, their shamans, and of course a big number of the reindeers. The, the Nanets became even more kind of the others um, for the new Soviet um, authorities than they were for the previous Russian authorities. So they play a, a lesser role in the global Soviet policies. For the Nenets themselves, Russians are not um, exclusively um, the children of the devil, which is like, according to the folklore, they, they believe that Russians um, come from the mother of the Lord of the Dark. Um the well, Russians vary for them. At one time, they ruled the lands, lands um, of the Nanets. Sometimes they conquered each other, um, one Russian authority changing places with another. So occasionally, the Nanets could not tell who were the real representatives of Russian authorities. That changed so quickly. And when you're far, far away from the um, government seat, then things yeah, happen 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 much quicker than than uh, news travel. For the Nenets today, Russians are neither good nor bad. They they are inevitable neighbors. They are just there. In former times, times uh, Russians were a given phenomenon. But now some Nenets, especially the younger ones, they believe they are able to influence um, Russians. Or at least the, the, the local residents in their areas, um, positively through their own, uh, values they carry within, um, within the group of people. Um, Nanets nomads consider their culture and the people and habitat as the core of the universe. And that's something, it's not supposed to be, um, arrogant. It's more their position in the dialogue is um, mostly defensive. Um, 
they're pre- they're trying to preserve their own values. Um, they don't want to borrow those of uh, of other people. They uh, do not pretend to compete uh, compete economically or culturally with uh, with the Russians, um, the American or Japanese. They have no global interest. For them, the tundra and their society is the world. So when they think about themselves as the core of the universe, they think more of a holistic approach just on their own life. It's just everything um, deals around their daily life. It's not about um, having a geopolitical um, approach here. And that's very, very um, important. Soviet ideologies had a very strong impact on peoples of the Arctic tundra. Their cultural and spiritual beliefs were deeply affected by the political transformations. Yet Nanit's songs, for example, they survived because of of the lack of interest um, of the the Soviets. Um, For them, the Soviets thought that the song, the Nanit song tradition, is closely connected to shamanism, which was not really closely overlooked by uh, the Soviet officials. Song was not repressed in the same way as other religious practices were. In uh, previous centuries, and especially in recent decades, Nenets culturally survived mostly in defiance of Russian influence and that cultural defense provided great results for them. Especially the nomadic part of, of the Nanets have preserved the traditions so thoroughly that someone who would just stumble upon nom- nomadic camp might mistakenly attribute their ancient way of life to the lack of contact with outsiders when it's um, instead a path of choice. It's not that they have no contact. It's just they, they choose to maintain their traditional way of life. And that retention is um, very, very um, interesting. They, they, they retain their archaic epic song repertoire and the value still in place on performers of this unique genre. They're not simply indexes of the physical isolation of this population, but they mark a tenacious desire to keep the tradition, to keep those expressions intact, despite the efforts of several Russian rulers to bring the region under the authorities' domain. And for a small group, that's quite um, a challenge. In the past, the song tradition was um, very closely linked with shamanistic rituals. And as Christianity um, spread through the region, these um, spiritual practices, they succumbed to the uh, will of the new order. And one of those primary contacts for performance just disappeared. However, the Nanits, they have retained their singing tradition despite this development they really kept hold to it the key to understanding this phenomenon lies in in the role these heroic stories maintained in in their songs have have played and when we look into the traditional music of the nanets they include epic poems which is very closely related to the finnish uh, kalevala Traditional Nanet music includes the use of no 
instruments and no dance. So it basically is just the voice. Very, very important. That is a major difference from the other types of music we covered so far. So that's really a huge difference. The contents of the songs or the songs there are two different types of songs and the first one is the so-called narrative song the narrative songs they are based on stories considered um, a true story a legendary undefined past it's kind of a history book if you like it's just like a song history the stories themselves are typically long um, both in terms of performance and story content so the, the performance can take several hours, even several evenings. And the events of the story may um, cover even years or decades. So the oldest narrative them, uh, themes are filled with fantasy, and yet the overall scene tends to be highly realistic. The Nenid's way of life is depicting the songs in detail. So the narrative songs serve as a kind of an oral chronicle of the history of uh, the people. And that's kind of like the archive of Nanets. In addition to the narrative song, there are so-called hero or giant songs. The giant theme is uh, presented in some of the oldest documented texts. However, as early as 1840, the giant theme was already becoming secondary and rarer at the same time than the narrative songs. The giants are usually depicted as monstrous man-eaters, as embodiments of evil, which the hero is bound to engage in an unfair fight, um, similar to the David uh, versus Goliath story. But eventually uh, he will win by his bravery. This uh, narrative form in those giant or hero songs is closely related to, to fables in the Western um, countries. The actors in the stories may have supernatural powers that can transform themselves into animals, flying clouds and so on. The hero um, is referred to in the third person, which shifts the emphasis to more to, towards the story, not to the individual. So it's not about a hero, it's more about what the hero um, experiences. The scale of the events in the story is often drastically um, hyperbolized. The, the journey may last many years through several lands. The warriors may fight with each other 10 years on the same battlefield and so on. One of the main characteristics in the story is the distinctive person of, uh, per, personified internet narrator who defines the opening uh, scene in the story. Um, he usually... He hovers freely over the tundra, and where something is going to happen, he zooms into the place for further action. He helps to to guide. It's a little bit like in an audiobook, the narrator, or here on the podcast, we as as a host. The second subtype on the narrative song is a so-called Yaraba, Yarabts. Um, the name Yarabts derives from than that word yartsi, which means to cry, to weep. So literally, Yarabts is translated as a crying song. It's a song telling about the life and fate of an individual, and it's very often an autobiographic uh, nature. The crying comes from one of the most popular themes in those songs, namely the hardship and grief of the life of the hero. 
it's not so much a funeral or a grieving song. It's really more like a personal song that translates more into a personal song of that person. So unlike the hero song and this narration, the primary interest concentrates on the actions of the of the narrator. The narration is conducted by the narrator themselves. So the hero or the narrator is presented merely as an actor and the inner thoughts and the feelings are uh, much, much more uh, depicted. So, Chris, what do you think? Let's have a listen to a little example of um, a young Nenet girl who um, escapes from a, fi- uh, a fiancé, which is contrary to the will of her mother. All right, let me play that for you. <laughs> Yonarto Yonyangi Miakno Nyarte Sidanye Nyarye Yurjo That's interesting sounding. It's very simple, very reduced yes. when you com- compare that what we heard um, in the other episodes so far. So there is no instrumentation as um, described. It's literally just the voice and it's very um, monotone. It's just really, it's it's mainly the, the lyrics and there comes one big disadvantage um, into play and that's if you don't know the language, you don't get the song. And that's that's really difficult when voice is the only thing um, used as form of an instrumentation, if you like. But um, th- overall, and especially in the the, the old um, narrative text, there are some recurrent themes, such as the quest for wife from a faraway country. Um, or f- feuds or battles between families or tribes. Um, and of course, the giant theme among the most ancient uh, themes. The performers of the narrative songs have to be specialized in their task. So yet they are not professional in the way um, that they require payment for performance. Um, except if we like, um, keep out the abundance of food or beverages during a performance, which is provided. It's a kind of um, payment I would expect. Um, they rank high in, in, in their social status if, uh, if they are really good. Uh, they have to be good in order to have an audience and to keep its interest in the story if the story lasts for hours or even several nights. They have served a period of learning um they need to learn the practice as a novice a novice under um, a senior supervisor 
Um, as such, many of those APIC texts tend to um, repeat same thematic types of stories. So the quality of the performer is closely connected to his abilities to rekindle the story in the audience. So he has to be able to improvise details um, very, very often. And usually a good performer is um, or has performed like most of his life. So it's um, rather older um, people than younger. Interestingly, in this role um, is that it's um, closely related to that of an assistant to a shaman too. So they 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 have kind of a, a very close relationship to the shamans in uh, in that way. Um, it's kind of a they they have quite a, kind of a, a mediator role between shaman and uh, humans because the words of the spirits they are considered to be dangerous to human ears. So they require a mediator or a repetitor um, for for that and that usually was the uh, shaman or the assistant of the shaman um today there's an ongoing influence of the mongolian culture and include uh, including mongolian music all the way to the indigenous people in the arctic so throat singing is expanding the mongol metal rock is coming to um the yamal area or even uh russians european north from the 1940s on, there were organized folk music groups as part of the so-called uh, nativization uh, policy. So each autonomous region was supposed to have um, a folk group, a, a local organized folk groups. Some survive till nowadays, like Seti Yamal. Um, that's the group that covers um, the region of, uh, of Yamal. And the group sings in five languages, uh, in, in Nanitz, in Kanti, in Komi, Selkop, and in, in Russian. Um, so they, they are kind of representatives of those groups, but, but don't be surprised. They, they heavily exploit the stereotypes of, of natives, um, when they're performing in reindeer skins, fur hats, and drums. It's, it's kind of the Russian version of, uh, Orientalism, if you like. They also introduced some creative experiments like choral polyphony that was not really existence in um, northern folklore and no matter what kind of tribe you're looking into. However, in um, 2014, the um, group performed their 45 years anniversary con uh, concert in Salekar and we have a listen to the opening chant.
this kind of reminds me a bit of the Bulgarian choirs, the Bulgarian singing, which um, indeed does. Does I have similar know. harmony structure? Um, not, not not as this one was not as like shrill as the Bulgarian choirs are, but um, it still had some similarities, at least some. It can go as shrill if you like. Okay. There are other examples, but um, this was the. I think shrill is the wrong to, word, but but uh, you kind of know what I mean. Exactly, but it's also kind of a thing that you will find in um, a lot of communist countries. You have those folklore groups which sound quite similar in a way. What I find interesting here is that you still. You you hear different influences. You you might hear the influence from the from the uh, north. You also get an idea of um, Mongolic influence from there, from from um, Asian parts. And even today, this group is quite successful within Russia. It serves as a kind of a ambassador for the Yamal region, and it does contain some of the song traditions of the the Nenets. So it is a lively part of the involvement and development of this unique tradition, which is also a very complex um, tradition. And we will have a couple of uh, literature in the show notes. So if you're uh, up for it, uh, feel free and um, dive into it a little bit more in detail. Um, I hope hope it helps to tell the story of the Nanit people because it's a very interesting story. And not many know about that. And um, that's it from my side. Thank you so much. That was another exciting one. Do we do we get any more of these? I mean, while what as we have to do a lot of work to research them, can we can, can I convince you to do at least one more? We have at least one more. Yes, <laughs> that's cool. That's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Okie dokie. Thank you so much. That was another episode of Curiously Polar. Um, and uh, yeah, more more of this to come. Um, so keep your fingers crossed. I hope I hope we we manage to get out in one in a week. But if we don't, then you know why. And uh, with that, um, thank you very much. Uh, let us know what you think about our episodes. Do you miss a topic? Should we cover something else? Do you want to get? a deeper insight or something on a previous topic, um, let us know. We have an email address, info at curiouslypolar.com. You can find us on our social media channels, on our website, curiouslypolar.com, on Twitter, at curiouslypolar, on Insta, at curiouslypolar. And uh, we'll be back soon. Until then, everyone, take care and bye-bye.